We have said all along, and what our members have been telling us, this is a supply and demand issue. And the demand is so high and the supply is so low that the wages are going to increase. When the demand starts to decrease or when the supply starts to increase, you will see those prices start to come back down. are back in the studio today on Behind the Scrubs. I have a uh, very, very special guest uh, with me today, Toby Malara. Uh, he is the Vice President of Government Relations for American Staffing Association. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to jump on with me today. Uh, really excited to, to chat with you and, and welcome to the show. Toby, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, Justin. And thank you for having me. It is my uh, privilege to be on the show here. And I really appreciate you reaching out and asking me to come on and talk to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. My pleasure. And, you know, I obviously, uh, you know, wanted to connect with you and, and have you on after I uh, had the pleasure to sit in on your presentation uh, a couple weeks ago, in which you provided a ton of value to to the audience on, you know, the, the legislative update uh, regarding um uh, pri the price gouging narrative that's that's uh, real popular um, in right. uh, in our in our industry the healthcare staffing industry which we'll we'll dive into but uh, but dude obviously want to just uh, you know acknowledge you and, and let you know I appreciated everything that you shared and you know I, I took away a lot of value from that and was able to you know share that value with my team uh, so I'm 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 excited to have you on today and appreciate appreciate you making the time so just to uh, dig into a little bit of, of your background for for the audience and so you've been with ASA. Uh, for it looks like 18 plus years um, and uh, yeah. you also have a, a, <laughs> it looks like also a little correct me if I'm wrong a little entrepreneurial background too so in addition to ASA you're running the Malara Broadcast Group uh, sounds like as well yeah. so um, uh, tell us a little bit more kind of about your your background and, and your origin story it's interesting I uh, graduated from college and uh, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, I, I, I wanted to work uh, on a presidential campaign and transform that into a full-time job. Unfortunately, the candidate uh, that I was working for did not win. So I was then stuck in a position of, okay, what do I do now? And so the first thing I did was something that um, if I ever become president or work in the White House, I'm going to pass a law to make sure that everybody between the age of 16 and 21 at one point works as a waiter or a bartender. Uh, the service <laughs> industry is an invaluable training tool, uh, no matter what line of work you go into. So I was waitering and bartending, uh, and one day I was having a conversation with my dad, and he said, you know what, you should go to law school. Um, I said, yeah, but I don't really want to be a lawyer. Uh, you know, it doesn't really excite me. He's like, well, look, you don't have to be a lawyer just because you have a law degree. You can do anything with a law degree. Uh, and so I, I went to law school in, in D.C. and uh, did a lot of uh, political internships and all, all of a sudden fell even more in love with politics and graduated from law school and, and went to work uh, on Capitol Hill working for a uh, a Republican from Buffalo, New York, by the name of Jack Quinn, Congressman Jack Quinn. Uh, and then uh, after about a year and a half there, uh, moved to the private sector, worked for a trade association called the National Technical Services Association, uh, which is a 
very similar to ASA, except it was focused on um, uh, technical engineering scientific firms. Uh, and then a couple of years after that, moved over to ASA, where we represent the entire staffing community. Uh, and yeah, I've been here for uh, a little over 18 years. Hard to, hard to believe that, but it's true. That's awesome. And I want to go back to um, the, the service industry soundbite you dropped there. I, I agree with that. I actually uh, grew up in the, the restaurant business. Uh, in you know, so I, I've held a few positions, um, most notably dishwasher. But I, I would like to say that yeah. I think that to your point or what I what I hear that, you know, that is that, you know, it's, you know, in, working in the service industry, you you get some really good real life experience dealing with conflict resolution, uh, having maybe, you know, some disgruntled uh, people and, and being able to deploy empathy and, and, and listen and hear people out. So uh, I think uh, that's that's a great uh, pro tip uh, working in the, the service industry. Those those skills absolutely translate over. That's exactly it. I mean, you get you you get faced with split second decisions on your feet that you have to make without having to without having the ability to go back and talk to your manager, talk to your boss. You know, I mean, it's things you got to deal with right away. You got to deal with customers that are happy, that are angry. You got to deal with kitchen help. Uh, that usually is slammed and trying to uh, keep up. And, and, you know, I was always the person that, you know, would come back to the kitchen and be like, oh, yeah, no, I forgot to, you know, that was my, <laughs> that was my favorite, that was my tagline. <laughs> I forgot to tell you guys I need, you know, dot, dot, dot. But yeah. I, it, was, it was just an amazing experience uh, teaching you how to listen, how to be patient. Uh, and, you know, I got, I've got two kids that are uh, 16 and 14, uh, and the 16 year old, uh, is a lifeguard or was a lifeguard this past summer. will be again this summer. Uh, another job that I think she's learned a lot from, but I'm looking forward to getting them both, um, maybe not behind the bar because those memories are a little too fresh, but, uh, uh, at least, uh, uh, out in tables working, uh, and help people find, uh, what they want on the menu. I have to share this little side note. Uh, this is, is I, I, I can't make this stuff up. It's, uh, it's so funny. So the lifeguarding is like, that's one exactly like no joke lifeguarding. Out of, I was at a water park in, in the greater Sacramento area, Northern California. Um, that's exactly what I was doing. I was working as a lifeguard when I transitioned and got into healthcare staffing back when I was, was much, much younger. So yeah. um, that's interesting uh, that, that, that that would come up too. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I appreciate that as well. So shout out to all the lifeguards out there. Um, so can you explain, uh, explain to me, but you know, for, for the audience um, a little bit about um, ASA and what, what that is for those that don't know or have never heard of, of ASA? Sure. So ASA is a national trade organization that represents the temporary staffing industry and temporary staffing companies. And I say national, we're actually international because we have several firms that either have offices internationally or are headquartered internationally. Uh, and the role of a trade association is to better the industry uh, through a lot of different avenues. One of them is education. Uh, we do a lot of programs for our members and non-members, whether it's uh, how to recruit more efficiently or sales. We have certification programs. Um, but probably our core mission is to be the legal and legislative watchdog of the industry, to make sure that harmful laws are not enacted uh, in states or on the federal level that would impact what our folks do, which is, as you said earlier, like you do every day, find people jobs. I mean, that's what our people do. 
And so we wanna make sure they have the best environment to do that in. Uh, we wanna make sure that they're complying with all federal and state laws while they're doing it, that's just as important. Uh, and so the association is kind of the, the way that we can do that. It also allows us to bring together different businesses under the same umbrella of staffing and allows us to kind of have a critical mass when it comes to lobbying in the states and in the federal government for legislation that we're opposed to or that we may be against. And that's really important because this is a really, really big industry. And I have conversations with legislators all the time and I tell them, you know, we're $120 billion industry and they're just floored by that. You know, we employ, you know, we employ 12, 13 million people a year uh, really, really, really important information. So the association gives us that chance to kind of work together uh, within the, the within the scope of the federal law to advocate on behalf of the industry. Uh, and you've got, I mean, we're, we always kid about the fact that in, in Virginia, uh, we're right outside of, uh, we're in Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river from D.C. Um, in D.C. and Virginia, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting an association. Um, you name me a group, and I guarantee you, uh, there's an association. I mean, probably the, one of the best well-known associations is the Chamber of Commerce, right? Um, but you've got the National Beer, Beer Wholesalers Association, which is right across the street from us. Uh, you've got lots of associations that are looking out for their industries and working on the legal and legislative aspects uh, to promote their members' businesses. So that's what we do here at ASA. I love it. I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I agree. Uh, we're are in, obviously we're, we're in the, the healthcare niche of, of the staffing industry, but staffing as a whole is a massive industry. And I, I would uh, agree with the sentiment that a lot of people aren't aware of that, how big it truly is and, and how many people, uh, you know, are employed through, uh, the staffing industry. Um, so can you just to set the stage, uh, for, you know the uh, one of the the primary topics we're gonna we're gonna discuss today. Can you um, give just a little context behind what your role uh, entails as the vice president of government relations at ASA? Yeah, so we have here at ASA, we have a four person legal team. Uh, we have a chief legal officer, we have a general counsel, we have a senior counsel, and then I'm uh, the vice president of government relations. Um, we all are lawyers and we all work on the same issues. We're all kind of conversant in everything, um, but we all also have our specialties. And my specialty is, is legislative work. And so, you know, for lack of a better word, I'm primarily the, uh, the main advocate for the association, the main lobbyist for the association. Uh, and I also, we also have a, a political action committee, a, a, a PAC, that we use to donate to candidates that support the policies of the association. And so that's one of the other things that I, I work on. I'm in charge of the pack and, and kind of who gets those contributions. Um, so my usually day-to-day -day job deals with legislation and advocacy on the federal and state level. Um, but all four of us kind of have each other's backs and, and cover each other as we go through because for the membership size that we have, a four-person legal team is is kind of erring on the smaller side. Uh, so we all kind of have to wear a couple different hats. Got it. Makes sense. Uh, thank you for that. So 
Jumping into it, uh, there is a popular narrative in the media uh, right now, or there has been um, for the last, you know, uh, several weeks. And we, you know, typically uh, in the the healthcare staffing space, um, we don't get a lot of big media coverage. Um, and the the narrative punchline of the narrative is really that you know we're the staffing agencies are being uh, demonized. Um, I guess in my my words, as far as um, for price gouging uh, hospitals um, for travel nurses. And so um, you know you you obviously are are. Uh, an ex- expert in, in, in what's going on with this right now. And so um, I, I, to start is like, what, what are, what were the origins of, of this complaint that's out there that, you know, staffing agencies are uh, price gouging, uh, ho- you know, hospitals essentially or healthcare facilities? Yeah. And it, it's a good question. And it is, it's actually, you know, for the most part, it's driven more by the long-term care facilities and nursing homes. Uh, and we can get into that in a second. But to, to answer your question, you know, back before the pandemic, um, healthcare staffing uh, was a, a very robust business and was one of the fastest growing segments, certainly of temporary staffing. Um, and, you know, I think hospitals and, and other medical facilities found uh, a great partner with healthcare staffing, able to backfill shifts or bring on extra. Uh, personnel when needed. Um, I think everybody would say that there was uh, a shortage of nurses before the pandemic. Um, And then what happened was the pandemic hit in March of 2020. And all of a sudden, we saw not only a sharp increase in the demand for nurses, but we saw more, more troubling than that was a sharp decline in the availability of nurses. So we had Uh, a supply problem that was exacerbated by the pandemic. We had nurses that were physically and mentally exhausted. They were leaving the profession um, because they were um, just so overwrought with what they were doing on a daily basis and, and just needed a break. And so what happened was nurse staffing firms got kind of pushed to the forefront. Um, Traveling nurses became more readily uh, willing to go travel because there were a bunch of state laws that had been suspended that allowed more free flowing movement of nurses from state to state. And finally, what happened was nurses that were put, putting themselves in this position of really getting in harm's way. And, and, you know, we say it a lot, you know, maybe sometimes too casually, but they were really on the front line of this pandemic and they just started to demand higher wages. They were working on godly hours, sometimes in really bad conditions. They were away from their family, whether physically away, like they were traveling, or they would come home from a shift. I mean, how many of us remember the stories and pictures of people, family members, like waving to each other outside the window because they didn't want to, you know, uh, potentially expose their children or or spouse to something. And so they just started demanding more money, uh, which they should have. They deserve it. And so staffing firms, nurse health staffing firms started to, you know, pay them more money. But as they pay the the nurses more money, they've got to increase their bill rate. And so then the bill rates started to go up to the facilities, the healthcare facilities. And so now they're sticker shock at seeing these bill rates increase, not knowing the mechanics of how a staffing firm works. They just started drawing conclusions. Well, 
Obviously, if we're paying twice as much as we were last year, the staffing firms are, are taking advantage of this and they're, you know, they're gouging us for profits. When in reality, most staffing firms in the healthcare space have seen their profits remain steady and possibly even decline because the rates have gone up so much they've had to keep other things intact to make it even remotely affordable. So back in June of 2021, the California Hospital Association sent a letter to the California Attorney General asking the Attorney General to look into allegations of price gouging by staffing firms, uh, nurse, nurse staffing firms. Uh, and that was kind of the first shot that was fired. And then the Long-Term Care Association folks, uh, and along with the Hospital Association, sent a letter to uh, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Zients, who is the head of the White House COVID Task Force team. Uh, and they asked Mr. Zients to have the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, look into these allegations of price gouging by nurse staffing firms. And so then once that started, then we started to see at the end of last year, states as they prepared for the 2022 legislative session, start building up and looking at introducing legislation to try and fix what they saw as a problem. And that's where we are now today. We've got, uh, I think, 12 states that have introduced about 15 bills uh, directly aiming at this issue. Uh, they go about it doing different things in different ways, um, but it's very much a topic that is on their mind. Uh, and now what we're hearing, of course, and, and because we have said all along and what our members have been telling us, so this is a supply and demand issue. And the demand is so high and the supply is so low that the wages are going to increase. And when the demand starts to decrease or when the supply starts to increase, you will see those prices start to come back down. We've heard from several of our members that in the past 30 to 45 days, they're starting to see the prices start to come down and the wage rates start to come down because as Omicron has worked its way through, it now hopefully is receding, the demand for nurses is less, and so those prices are starting to drop. But in the meantime, we've still got these bills in these states uh, that are, you know, well, maybe well-intentioned and certainly we're sympathetic to the nurse, the nurse staffing firms, or the, the clients of the nurse staffing firms, the long-term care facilities, about the prices they're incurred that they're uh, incurring. Uh, these these bills, by and large, are not the way to correct that problem. I hear you, and, and uh, a lot, a lot um, to that you just went through right there. And I guess to to kind of start on one of the things that you just e ended on um, is, yeah, the we're seeing it. To your point, we are seeing the rates come down a little bit, but also as we uh, go into what is traditionally uh, the slow season for healthcare staffing, meaning coming out of the winter months, the a, a drop off is is normal. That that's been I've been in for twenty years. This is very, very normal to start seeing that that drop off. And yeah, and we, and we all know the the COVID rates are going to continue to to come down. Um, but uh, to to jump back to the kind of where you started with that, with one of the things is that like the nur the clinicians, the nurses, and all the healthcare traveling professionals is like uh, to your point is like they were mentally exhausted physically exhausted emotionally exhausted and they they needed so much support during the pandemic and you know they still do because they were on the front lines they were in the trenches uh, battling this pandemic putting them the putting the, themselves directly into harm's way every shift 
and for doing it for eight shifts in a row and then coming back home to their family and then potentially putting their family in harm's way. Um, and so they, they were sacrificing so much uh, throughout this. And so, um, I mean, they, they, they need all the support in the world and whether that's that financial support or it's mental health support or, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot, but um, they deserve it. They're, they're working there. They've been working so hard and sacrificing so much um, at the end of the day. Um, the other thing is too, is like, is, uh, like you know is highlighting it's like the ultimately you know the supply and demand issue and it's it's the market that determines the the, the pay rates for these clinicians it's it's like you said the sure. clinicians demanding the pay wanting more pay for for working as harder than they've ever worked their entire lives their entire career and then it's also on the facility side it's like when you have you know a, a regional uh, market where you know um, a, a hospital's uh, bill rates are you know 50% or more lower than their competing facilities, yeah, they're going to have a much harder time uh, bringing nurses in, especially travel nurses, because they can go down the street to another facility where they, they're making two, three grand more a, a week or whatever it is. And so that is also going to uh, that also pushes uh, the the rates up with the facilities too, and you know at the end of the day, obviously I'm you know I'm empathetic, especially to you know like the long term care nursing home facilities because they have the they're in the most difficult spot as far as like they can't compete, they don't have the same resources as uh, as a ho hospital. And that's a great point, Justin. They don't have the same resources because most of the long term care facilities and nursing homes are reimbursed through Medicaid and Medicare reimbursements, and we know that they were trailing behind what they should have been before the pandemic. And then you throw the pandemic in there and all the, the stress that those healthcare facilities went through and all the resources they went through, uh, the problem just got bigger and bigger. And, you know, my understanding is they did not receive the same type of financial help from the federal government that some hospitals did. Uh, and some of the other medical facilities did. So that's going to make the problem even uh, more acute for them. Uh, and, you know, they, they had a tough time staffing beforehand, even before the pandemic. Uh, you know, even, even when things, you know, were not as crazy as they, they have been, they had trouble attracting talent and keeping talent. Uh, and so all of this certainly didn't help. And, and they have certainly, I think, felt this, uh, much more acutely than, than some of the other medical facilities have, although they faced a lot of price increases as well. Um, I think it's just been different on the long-term care facilities and nursing homes. And then uh, another thing, what you when you uh, when you're uh, going through just as far as like the the states um, and then the bills that have been introduced. I know when you talked on this uh, a few weeks ago, was like there was like eight states with uh, eleven bills introduced total. So now it sounds like there's a couple more states, uh, a few more bills out there um, that are that have been introduced. Uh, so yeah. a little bit more activity. Uh, but um, has there been a lot uh, more actual action, um, you know, is, is since um, or over the last few weeks, in, in addition to the, the handful of uh, bills that have been introduced? No, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. And these the states legislatures are in these these short sessions this year, which means their their calendar for getting action done is going to be much more condensed. So we've got a couple of bills that have had hearings uh, that are moving through the process uh, of being, you know, either considered by uh, one of the bodies or, you know, talking to supporters and opponents about how to make it better through amendments. Um, that seems to be happening more quickly in this short session. Um, 
But you know, the bills that got introduced since the we did the webinar about a week and a half or so ago, um, you know, a lot of them were are almost what I would call um, you know copycat bills in that um, they've already been introduced someplace. So somebody saw it and thought, hey, this is a good idea. Let's introduce this and get this into discussion. Um, you know, it's it's. I think we're probably at the end of seeing um, states introduce new legislation to this this year just because of the calendar. Uh, it'll be interesting to see as we move on through the summer and fall again, if things continue to improve, is this an issue that's brought up again next year? Or uh, was this really an issue uh, that was just totally reactive to the increases that were brought about by you know, the marketplace responding to the supply and demand issue that we were talking about earlier. As far as, uh, I, um, like people, the, I guess players for lack of a better term, sorry, like, uh, people and the entities that are, are pushing back, uh, you know, against these, these bills or testifying against them. That includes, um, you know, the, the staffing coalition, uh, of staffing agencies, um, uh, nurses and hospitals um who else is, is is i guess fighting back uh against this uh, right now so it's a, it's an interesting coalition of groups and it's going to depend on the specifics of the bill i i won't go too far into the weeds but um you know when you get a bill that deals with nurse rate caps that's when the nurses come out in force because they see it uh rightfully so is is almost what we refer to as a a nurse salary cap, right? It's it's an artificial uh, barrier to how much money that they can make decided by uh, legislators in the state. So the nurses come out hard against that. If you have a bill that doesn't include nurse caps, uh, the, nurse, the nurses tend to probably stand more on the sideline or they're focusing more on what's, under, what's in the bill and some of the other issues they've got to address like workplace safety Right, that's another big issue for them. Um, some of the other issues that they've talked about that I've heard about in my conversations or being parts of meetings with these with these groups is um, you know nurse staffing ratios. Right, I know one of the problems that you probably have run into, Justin, is you hear stories from nurses that you know they're they're put on the floor in a hospital and they've got and I'm making up a number, but they they're in charge of 14 beds. Right, usually they may be in charge of four or five. And now because of the supply and demand issue in the pandemic, they've got 10, 12, 14 beds that they've got it with 10 to, um, which is, you know, just literally tripling somebody's workload. So, you know, there's some states, there are some, some nurses in states that are looking for those kind of adjustments. The hospitals, interestingly enough, uh, will also, as you, as you noted, oppose nurse rate caps because they see that if you put a nurse rate cap system in place in a state, it's going to drive the nurses out of that state. It's as simple as that. There are two states that have nurse rate caps, Minnesota and Massachusetts. Uh, you know, from what we've heard from members, they're constantly struggling to find nurses. And the fact of the matter is, because we're the only two states, if you can go to, if you're in, if you're in Oregon and they pass a nurse rate cap law, and you know that you can go to California or Washington or even Idaho, and get paid market-based rates for your services, as opposed to a, a artificially contrived limit that they've placed on you in Oregon, 
I mean, you know, it's it's almost too simple to say, but you know, that's what they're going to do. They're going to leave the state and they're going to go work elsewhere. So hospitals hospitals see the nurse rate caps as a problem when it comes to their uh, potential supply of labor, and so they they have pushed back in, in a lot of instances on the rate caps as well. When we get into some of the more specific things uh, with regards to maybe trying to limit how much a staffing firm can can bill a client or um, asking the staffing firm to release proprietary information with regards to their bill rates to the client. That's where the hospitals tend to line up in favor of those proposals. Quick clarifying uh, question on, for, for me um, is, so Massachusetts and Minnesota, they have nurse pay rate caps, but was that pre? They do. Have that, then has that, those aren't just, oh, yeah, those aren't, they've, they've been there, correct? Or they, are there? They've been, a, they've been around for years and years and years. I mean, I know, okay. Uh, Massachusetts rate caps were in place when I started working here uh, back in 2003. So they've been in place a, a long time. And both of those states had to do some pretty extraordinary things during the pandemic to adjust their rates mid-year to try to attract more nurses uh, because they were being really ham- really hamstrung by, the, by those laws. Yeah. So stating the obvious, recapping, there is a, a massive nursing shortage. There's, it's been around forever. It's been exasperated by uh, the pandemic. Um, and more nurses now are wanting to travel than ever before, um, and which is creating more shortages um, in other areas. Um, the demand is all-time levels. Obviously, we're, we're well aware of that. Um, and so that you know, really sparks the question that um, I think uh, all of us have been trying to solve, um, or at least that are in this the, uh, this sector for for a long time. Toby is how can we solve this problem? Um, oh. Easy question, uh, r- ridiculously hard uh, to solve. Yes, more nursing programs. If we start at the root, that for sure would ha- that would help. Uh, more more states participating in the nursing licensure compact. Um, bringing in more international nurses. I mean, those are some good, for sure, some good starting points. But from from your perspective, um, how can we solve this problem? Well, I mean, I mean, you just you just named a really good couple of items right there. I mean, one of the things that that I've learned personally during this time working this issue is that it's not so much the the nursing schools that are missing. I, I went to uh, I went to college with, I went to Georgetown, which has a, a renowned nursing school. Um, the problem is, is that getting the faculty to come teach there. Um, and, and so the state and the federal government has to dedicate resources to these schools. Uh, not necessarily all have to be attached to uh, colleges and universities. I mean, you could, you could create nursing schools that are freestanding. Um, but have a dedicated faculty that could teach nurses how he or she are going to act in the world once they get out and get a job. Um, you know, that is, is paramount to, to solving this problem. The nurse licensure compact is, is just a simple thing that states can do to make sure they have access to the most nurses they possibly can. Because travel nurses are great, but if if a state's not part of a licensure compact and that nurse is not licensed to practice in that state, they're not going to go there. They can't go there. So the nurse licensure compact makes that easier. Uh, and again, I, I, you know, we go back to a point that you raised, the international nurses. This is a huge deal. I mean, back before 
2016, there was a consistent supply of foreign nurses coming into this country that many of them were trained either by American nurses or with the American health system kind of in mind to get them ready to come here and work. And the important thing was, was that not only were the nurses coming over to work, a lot of them were going into places that were underserved, you know, rural com communities um, and sometimes inner cities, places like that where they really had an even a more harsh shortage than other places. And so uh, this is, you know, affecting not only the overall labor supply, since we've, we've really cut back on the nurses that we've let in since 2016, uh, and then obviously COVID happened, and so that stayed in place. Um, but if we could get back to looking at increasing those visas to get the nurses to come into this country to work, that would go a long way toward helping the supply issue. And you know, ideally, the, the, the ones that come over on the visas to work, they apply for permanent citizenship and stay here. Um, but again, if you're, you know, I, I do think probably the, the most direct long-term uh, answer to this problem is creating an educational system. You know, I refer to it as the nurse infrastructure, right? Build an educational system that can handle as many people that want to be nurses as possible, that gets them trained as, as soundly and quickly as possible so that when they walk off the stage with their diploma in hand, you've got hospitals, long-term care facilities, and nurse staffing firms that are waiting at the parking lot, you know, to sign them to, to come work for them. Because I think that's really, you know, the long-term uh, solution that we need. Yeah, you Brett, you uh, raise a very good point right there. Is like nursing, the nursing schools are impacted. Obviously, is very well known. But is that there are so many people out there that want to be nurses, and they 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 can't, or it's delayed because they they can't get in uh, uh, to a program, or they're sitting on the sidelines for like two years, uh, or, or yeah. however long it might be. And and so um, there there is a desire, a, a very big desire for more people to get into that profession. So, um, I, I obviously, I, I don't have the answers. I don't know how to solve that, the nursing programs. But getting to your point, I think you, you know, what you're sharing is, I mean, it's a good, it's a good, uh, a starting point uh, in terms of, you know, some some practical next steps and in, in how we can make this better, um, and and through, you know, creating more opportunity uh, for. Uh, people to go through the program um, will will pause the impact. And I will say, um, you know, just a, you know, a bit of optimism, if you will, uh, with all this adversity that's been going on in the last you know two years, and um, is that you know uh, with with nurse uh, with the nurse pay rates, with the hospitals being short staffed, with the lack of efficiency and largely the healthcare staffing industry being stuck in the past. I, I do believe, and I'm, this is just some rhetoric, but I do believe like all that adversity, there's going to be a lot of positive outcomes a year, two, three years, five years down the road, because we have to go through hard times, difficult things have to happen in order for long-term positive change to unfold. I 100% agree with you because, you know, I think the one thing is that the, the federal and state governments uh, are now aware, um, you know, maybe before the nurse shortage was more of a kind of a 30,000 foot problem and maybe lawmakers were like, oh, yeah, we should probably deal with that someday. And you hate to say that it was a pandemic that that really made them focus their attention. But if that's 
if that's something positive that comes out of this, that we start to wrap ourselves out of this and say, okay, what can we do to make sure that from a nurse staffing standpoint and a long-term care health facility standpoint, this never happens again? What can we do? What investments do we need to make on the federal and state level? Uh, and I know that if, if the federal and state level made those investments, and, and, and Justin, you know this better than anybody, the, the businesses would be right there with them. And whether it's, you know, on-the-job training, whether it's, it's partnering with, with any of these nurse schools or, or nurse programs that came up, uh, or any, and it's not just nurses, right? We know that there's all sorts of healthcare professionals that need to be entered in this industry. We heard, um, you know, all sorts of support staff uh, in hospitals and nursing cares and long-term facilities left because they could go to Target and make more money or just as much money without the, you know, the depressing surroundings that they are around and, 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 and the health risks. Uh, so really kind of valuing these jobs on a day-to-day -day basis, if they, if they invest in the infrastructure to build up the nurses, we know that business would be right there with them. Um, and, and we know that the hospitals and the healthcare community would be there as well. Uh, and I think that's hopefully what comes out of this and, and what the federal government and state governments in partnership do. You know, increase the Medicaid reimbursement rates. You know, I, I've just heard too many stories about that they're so low. You know, look at, look at what that would do for these facilities and, and be open to anything, right? Um, I tell my kids all the time, you know, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There's no such thing necessarily as a dumb idea. You know, I agree a hundred percent. Right. I mean, and yeah. my, believe me, my kids push that axiom all the time with some of the things that come out of their mouths. But, <laughs> you know, we, we try to stay positive. We say, OK, yeah. let's work through this idea. Let's see what happens. So, you know, we should be we should be entertaining any kind of idea that would help uh, make people that want to be nurses make that easier for them, whether it's, you know, easier to do as far as being able to hold down another job while they're going to school, whether it's easier for them to dedicate themselves full time. Uh, we know the jobs will be there when they get out. Uh, we just need to make sure that they're trained properly. And, and I think they're ready for it. And I think that's something that we need to focus on moving forward. That's right. Uh, and, uh, I, I appreciate, uh, the, uh, if you don't ask, you don't get uh, mindset and it's the right. truth. Um, it, and uh, back to that, I just, is I, I do really appreciate that. And, uh, I believe that at live Biden, there are no dumb questions. And, and for myself, uh, you know, it's like to on the op the extreme end of that spectrum. Sometimes it pays off to be the 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 not the smartest person in the room because guess what? You're gonna learn a lot more, or and you learn a lot by asking questions. And I think yeah, you know absolutely. you know pe people are concerned about coming across uh, sounding dumb by asking a question, but um, it's 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 how we grow, it's how we learn, um, and I think we could deploy that more, uh, you know, in in our days. So I I appreciate that and. Uh, uh, Toby, I, my man, I, I cannot extend uh, enough gratitude uh, to you um, for, uh, of course, coming on, but obviously for uh, really all the uh, positive impact that uh, you are working, uh, sounds like working very hard and have been for a long time um, to, you know, in positively impact our industry or the staffing industry as a whole. So I appreciate uh, you for that and I want to acknowledge you for your efforts there. Well, thank you very much. And as I tell 
our members all the time, you guys give me the easiest story to tell in state legislators in Capitol Hill. Um, I mean, what other group gets to go up and say, are people, all they're concerned about is finding jobs for people and putting people to work? Uh, you know, it's a really, really easy sell. And when you throw in the fact that you guys are working in this in this space, in the healthcare space, that for the past two years has been so devastatingly impacted by this by this pandemic. And, you know, I, I know we've heard stories about how nurses were were ready to leave the industry altogether. Uh, and they found a staffing company that placed nurses that gave them a little bit more flexibility, that let them be more controlled or schedule, take some more time off when they needed it. And it kind of, you know, gave them a second lease on things and let them go back uh, and serve in those areas that so desperately needed it. So you guys deserve all of our thanks for everything you do uh, and for the people that you work with. And uh, we can't thank you enough. Uh, and we hope that uh, soon uh, we're all through this and, and talking about uh, lighter things. Uh, and maybe we can uh, go get lunch and have our kids work at the restaurant service. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, uh, um, my pleasure, our pleasure. And uh, I, again, uh, I, I can't thank, thank you enough for your, your time today and, and for, for making this my, happen. And it's been my provi pleasure. Providing thank value. you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, uh, keep up the great work out there. Uh, keep keep fighting the good fight. Uh, as I like to say, it's one team, one fight uh, here in the healthcare staffing industry. And I, I do need to point out. I'm sorry. One last thing before we officially go, because you yeah, you brought up. up it, it, no, no, it's just with like with with the with the nurses is is what is like you you mentioned flexibility, right? And and that, this is it's actually. Uh, I, I've spoken on this a lot, obviously, maybe not, uh, there's a, maybe some, there's some of it out there online, but it's like, there is kind of a common misconception that yes, uh, that it, it is popularized that travel nurses are making a ridiculous amount of money, but they deserve to be paid. Uh, but the reality is, uh, is that money is not the number one motivating factor for nurses and why they travel. Uh, it, it is not, uh, it, it's, it's in the top, I'll give it top three across the board, but it is, it is what you said, flexibility, or in other words, it's autonomy, right? Autonomy over their time, autonomy over their task, autonomy over who they're working with, where they're working, how long they're working for. It, it is a hundred percent that flexibility, that flexible lifestyle that is intrinsically motivating nurses to travel over money. Um, money is important. Yes. Um, and nurses are getting paid, yes, but it starts with autonomy, flexibility, and, and really the experience outside of bedside care, too. Yeah, so absolutely. I just had to throw absolutely that out right. there. 100% right on all accounts. Uh, I, I believe that myself. Uh, it, it really is for that flexibility and that autonomy to be where they want to be uh, and find the circumstances. And it can be something as simple as, you know, you get a nurse who... Uh, is just tired of winter, right? So he wants to go work on the West Coast or down in Florida during the wintertime. And then during the summertime, he's going to go back east or, or up to the plains or wherever he's from uh, and serve that area. But just having the ability to do that makes him a happier person and a happier employee and a better nurse. And, and what more do you need than that? That's right. And a, and, a, and a bigger positive impact on patient care at the end of the day. So, That's right. um, well, 
Thank you. Uh, I will. I will. Just so I don't keep going and asking questions, I'll, I'm gonna stop the <laughs> stop the recording right now. <laughs> cool.